On today's show, we're joined by Olivier Dacier, Head of Applied Research of APAC at Quantigo. Good morning, Olivier. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Nick Marrow, Lead for Global Trade and Analyst of Asia and Access China at the Economics Intelligence Unit. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. All right. Um, I think we'll start with the, let's take an overall broader look at, say, the deglobalization that's been going on over the last few years and how that's affecting some of the markets globally. Um, we've seen probably for about 30 years a whole globalization effect. And then I'd say over the last five to 10 years, it started being reversed and being accelerated over the last five years. China obviously has been affected. But how are you guys seeing the overall market position? Are markets benefiting from the deglobalization or is it really quite detrimental to the world? Um, I'll start with you, Olivier. Well, some markets have benefited, especially the realignment of the, the technology supply chain uh, away from China for now. So onshoring, friendshoring, nearshoring, whatever can be done, uh, given the uh, geopolitical situation and the, the confrontation between the U.S. and China. We've seen a lot of companies realign that, and that's benefited uh, markets like Japan. Japan is strongly up this year, and most of that is driven by their uh, technology or industrial part uh, of the technology supply chain. Uh, South Korea has benefited from that as well, although they have themselves been one of the biggest uh, players in that deglobalization uh, phase as well, with Samsung investing in, in regional uh, uh, plants in, in Thailand and Vietnam and others. So we've seen that spread, but most so far, most of the beneficiaries have been India and Japan in terms of the, the, the stock market uh, boost that they've gotten from that. And obviously, the uh, the biggest loser so far has been the Chinese stock market. Uh, Nick, do you... yeah, sure. Uh, so at EIU, we tend to look at this more in terms of say, you know, uh, portfolio investments, uh, direct investment. We don't follow the markets um, all that closely, but in terms of um, how uh, investment trends are being reshaped, it, it's a similar story to what Olivia was saying. Um, the other additional aspect I'd add on to this is the amount of interest that we're really seeing in ASEAN countries. Um, when we talk to our clients or when we look at broad investment trends, um, there's so much interest uh, in places like Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand. Um, and that's that's really something that's, you know, been a constant over the past decade. But the this attention was kind of put into hyperdrive following the initiation of the trade war back in 2018, and then with all of the supply chain disruptions and geopolitical tensions that we've seen just in the past couple of years, uh, that's made this, these conversations a lot more urgent. At the same time, I also want to is that if we look at kind of broad topics like trade flows, um, the deglobalization story is uh, maybe not as evident as some of the headlines would uh, pr project. Uh, so I think a great example of this is what we've seen with China and the U.S. Uh, in terms of their goods trade relationship. Last year, goods trade between the two countries reached a record high, uh, and that's been despite all of the geopolitical shocks um, and uh, supply chain tensions that have, that have emerged between the two countries. And even this year, um, as exports to the U.S. from China have fallen, exports from China to ASEAN have grown. Um, and in turn, ASEAN exports to the U.S. have risen, suggesting a realignment of supply chains rather than the elimination of um, demand for Chinese goods. And so I think we're seeing this de -global, excuse me, deglobalization topic 
um, kind of emerge in you know policy and politics and diplomatic relations. But when it comes down to the actual numbers uh, and how economies are responding to this, um, the story is more of adjustments rather than a retreat necessarily um, from this globalized world. At least that's kind of the more cautious approach that, that we're looking at in terms of how these trends are materializing. I was actually going to point that out. I was going to say, like, while people are talking about deglobalization, it is really an alignment. People, maybe not, or certainly in the Western markets, not manufacturing as much in China, moving it to, say, Vietnam, Bangladesh, but it's not actually going back domestically. Um, so it really, as you just said, is more an alignment. And therefore, is it more just a targeted move against China? And is that because of the politics side, or is it because China is starting to price itself out of the market? And people are just looking at cheaper alternatives, being the likes of Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, and other markets in the region. Um, I'll start with you this time, Nick. Yeah, I uh, that's a really good question. Um, and I think if we think about this topic of diversification, one thing that always struck me, uh, particularly over the past couple of years, was the divergence between rhetoric and reality. So say in corporate boardrooms or in discussions with you know firms like us, there was always this top topic of, you know, which are the markets that are going to be best primed to capture this investment. But then when you looked at the actual data in terms of production uh, or investments, no one was really, or I, I shouldn't say no one, but not many companies were really leaving China, particularly over the pandemic. Um, we saw actually a concentration of manufacturing in China in 2021, um, early part of 2022 before the lockdowns. Um, and over that period, China actually expanded its global share of exports. Um, and, and I think that was a nice illustration of the fact that a lot of companies continue to really see a lot of opportunity in China um, and were really unwilling to divest themselves from the market, particularly those firms that have been there for, you know, 20, 30 years. At the same time, very recently, that narrative is now coming undone. We saw FDI on a balanced payments basis plunge by around 87% over the second quarter of this year. Um, and, you know, I think right now what we're seeing a combination of slowing growth in China, greater political uncertainty, greater policy uncertainty, worsening geopolitical relations, anxieties over Taiwan. This confluence of factors very recently has finally pushed investors to, or many investors to say, you know what, we've had enough. We're not necessarily going to abandon our positions in China, but we need to do something to hedge against risk. Um, and, and only recently now we're really starting to see this new trend of um, kind of a, a strong reassessment of the market. And I think this is a really interesting point in time in terms of where do we go from here? How sustainable is this trend going to be? Are we really going to see kind of a continued um, reassessment and pullout of China, or is this only going to be a blip for as long as the Chinese economy um, kind of has these kind of near-term growth pressures? Um, and if those growth pressures indeed are, are more longer term, does that mean that FDI is just going to continue to fall? Um, and so... Um, yeah, I think I think to sum up, right now um, we're at a really interesting point in time because it does seem that investors have finally reached somewhat of a breaking point. Olivia, do you see the same thing? Do you see this breaking point in China? And also, how do you view this deglobalization, or is it just more of a realignment uh, question? So, I think you know Nick Nick made a, a mention of risk management, which is I think really where the investors are right now. Um, you know, you look at the economic data, uh, which is uh, a report card on how things have been, and investors position themselves for how things will be uh, in the next six months, one year, two years, and so on and so forth. And that's kind of what they did 
when everybody came out of the, the, the COVID lockdowns uh, everywhere globally, including in China. And now, because the, uh, the, the real data isn't living up to the expectations, we're, we're pretty much in risk management mode or in hedging mode everywhere. Uh, we see that the, the, the best performing sectors are the most recession-proof sectors in each market, not just uh, China, but also in, uh, in the U.S. and Europe. Value stocks does very well. Dividend yield strategies do very well in China still, but growth is dead. Nobody wants to touch growth stocks. Nobody wants to touch uh, leverage companies. Nobody wants to touch these kinds of risky bets, right? So we are uh, this year very much in a, in a risk management mode. People bought the pivot theory uh, and, and the fact that the global uh, economy might not uh, have a hard landing, but maybe just a soft landing. And they've been buying that since last uh, year, August. And now, uh, you know, the economy obviously did not get the memo and, and is much stronger than was anticipated in, in the West, is weaker than anticipated in China. So there are some, some uh, uh, dispersion here between uh, uh, several economies, uh, and mostly the biggest and the second biggest, which is a problem for investors. And their lack of, of capability of, uh, or at least of, of confidence in their forecast means that they are currently hedging and they are just um, looking for safety. They're looking for hedges to the risk that they already have taken and they're going to just wait out the rest of the year like that. Okay. Um, so let's move on a little bit from this whole um, decarb uh, globalization side and let's look at market metrics. Um, so is there anything this week that we've got to look out for um, in China, Europe and US or anywhere globally that could continue to affect the markets? Um, I'll start this time with you, Olivier. Well, short term, I mean, this week we're, we have two big things to look for. One in China, which is obviously the, the interest rate uh, decisions today and tomorrow, and, and also any kind of other stimulus, some real stimulus. The, uh, the market's been disappointed by the last couple of, of attempts at a stimulus. Uh, China really needs to come out with the big guns now to really get uh, investors to come back. Otherwise, uh, it'll be... Uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me type of, of, of event. The other, uh, um, obviously, point for this week is the um, Jackson Hole meeting in the U.S., with, uh, where we'll hear from the Fed and from the ECB about where they think the economy is going, where are they uh, seeing their uh, monetary policies going, and that's going to be a key for, for sentiment. Right now, investors are still looking at conflicting uh, uh, measures, right? We have a bond market that still has an inverse yield curve and still predicting recession, but yet economic data does not support that. We have some PMI data coming out this week also here and there that might also add some, some, some fuel to that debate. But for now, it's really much wait and see until these two things are known. Um, Nick? Yeah, so uh, I'll put my global trade hat on. Um, one thing that we've been noticing since late last year ha has been the downturn in kind of exports and trade activity coming out of Asia. And a lot of that is tied to this normalization in electronics demand post-pandemic as people have kind of gone back to the office, gone back to school, and demand for state-home goods is kind of moderated. Uh, the reason I mention that um, is this week we'll get a decent amount of data coming out of Taiwan uh, around export orders, industrial production, retail sales. Uh, the reason I mention that uh, is that Taiwan tends to be a bellwether uh, for global electronics demand. Uh, and if we start to see an upturn in that data, uh, then that might have 
implications for the rest of the region. Um, we need to see corresponding figures coming out of South Korea, Japan, China, some ASEAN economies to see if we're really expecting a rebound. And our own forecast is uh, we are anticipating the global electronic cycle to begin firming from the fourth quarter of this year as kind of destocking, particularly in the West, continues, and that creates a bit more space for demand to kind of come back online for these Asian economies. Um, but that's going to be really important picture to follow for anyone on the macro story for, for Asia, uh, given the kind of integral picture that electronics uh, plays. And then beyond that, uh, in terms of some political and geopolitical events that we're following very closely for this region, um, this week, we're expecting the Thai parliament to hold their vote for prime minister. Uh, there's been a lot of drama there um, around uh, which party is, is going to form the government. We're expecting um, the pro-Thai party to, to have their candidate kind of go through. Uh, and then on a more kind of globalized level, uh, there's going to be the BRICS summit in South Africa. Um, and I think this is particularly important um, given, uh, you know, Putin's uh, isolation. Um, uh, I think he's expected to, to bow out of it. Um, but how other leaders at that summit are going to respond to the current geopolitical events, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on Xi Jinping, who's been kind of out of the public eye um, for the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, I think, given the timing of meetings like Beidaihe. Um And so I think this will be an interesting uh, picture to see how kind of the uh, you know, non-Western world is responding to current global events. Okay, we have literally 35 seconds left, so I will ask both of you in like two words to say what are the big red flags that people have got to look out for in the next few days? Uh, well, I think I'll stick on China. Um, so Olivia just mentioned this, um, but there is a lot of concern around what's happening in the property market, uh, the growth slowdown, and essentially uh, China's very tepid response um, in terms of any stimulus measures to uh, arrest the, the trends that we're currently seeing. Um, I think we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see how policy measures are going to materialize to, uh, you know, react to what's happening in the market. And as Olivia mentioned just now, uh, the reaction so far from markets has been disappointing. So it'll be interesting to see if Chinese policymakers really take that on board or not. Okay, Olivia, in 10 seconds, any red flags? Yeah, I would agree with Nick. I think China is the big red flag, not just on the economy side, but also on the financial risk side in terms of the debt level that's coming due in the next 18 months. All right. Well, that's all we have time for. So I'd like to thank Olivier Dessier and Nick Mary for coming on. That's Olivier Dessier, Head of Applied Research of APEC at Quantigo, and Nick Mary, Lead for Global Trade and Analyst of Asia and Axis China at the Economist, the Economist Intelligence Unit.